Hello and welcome to the Wonder Baba podcast. My name is Sheena Mitchell. I'm a pharmacist and mum of three. I'm here to chat all about child and family health. I combine healthcare and practical advice to help you on your parenting journey. I really hope you enjoy the show. Today we are joined by Garode Kenny Moore from Irish Gay Dads. So very welcome to the show, Garode. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Good to chat to you. And you. Before we dive into finding a little bit more about your own situation, can you tell me a little bit about Irish Gay Dads and how it came about? Yeah, so Irish Gay Dads started life through Facebook about seven years ago. The founder was a guy called Dara Lally, and um, he and his husband were about to become parents, and they didn't know many other men who had kids. So men who had kids with other men, that is, of course. So they set up the Facebook group and it's grown and grown. And now there's about a thousand members. The goal of the group really is to just allow same sex dads to communicate with each other about issues, particularly around parenting. So lots of people in the group have children and have had them through surrogacy. Other members of the group are planning to do that. And then there's just a couple of people in the group who are kind of interested in the topic, but maybe not necessarily planning a journey. It's, it's a really good resource for anybody who is a gay male thinking about having kids. I know there is a lot of information on, say, citizens information. I actually was surprised to find a a decent amount of information on things like surrogacy. But in general, you're probably relying on things like Facebook groups for a platform for information and knowledge exchange. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of different Facebook groups out there dealing with the concept of surrogacy, but A lot of the locations where international surrogacy is possible will not facilitate gay men. So really for gay men, there's only three locations where you can have a child through surrogacy. That's the United States, Canada and the United Kingdom. Like when when we started our fertility journey, Seamus and I, back, God, it's nearly 11 years ago now, we thought we were the only gay couple in Ireland to want to have kids. We made lots and lots of mistakes along the way simply because we had nobody to talk about it. Irish Gay Dads is a really brilliant resource to have in that it allows people to to avoid duplicating the mistakes of others because other Facebook groups that discuss surrogacy, as I said, deal with surrogacy as a general concept and as a global concept. But as I said, gay men are very limited in the locations where they can go to. So the other groups aren't as relevant for that reason. A lot of surrogacy from Ireland happens in the Ukraine. So is it a case that those countries literally just will deal with male-female couples? Yeah. So if you wanted to have a child through surrogacy in the Ukraine, you have to be a heterosexual and married couple. Right. Okay. Before we get into the nitty gritty now, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and Seamus? And you have three children now, I believe. We do. So I'd love to hear all about how you met and if you don't mind what it was like growing up as a gay man in Ireland and how you found each other and all the nice stuff. That's what I want to know. (laughs) Yeah, and it's lovely to talk about all that nice stuff. So I met Seamus back in 2009. It was kind of a miracle that we met each other because Seamus is really into running. Like he's not here tonight. He's gone out for a big long run. And I actually met him in a running club. And the reason I say it's a miracle is because I hate running. But (laughs) (laughs) I was there because I was friends with a group of guys that I used to play football with, a group of gay guys, and they all kind of stopped playing football. And I was like, oh, right, but I better go. And they all joined the running club. And I thought, I hate running. But like, if I want to stay friends with these guys and kind of keep keep up the social network, I need to join the running club. So off I went to the running club and I saw Seamus at the club one morning. It's a gay and lesbian running club, the Dublin Frontrunners. And they always meet up for coffee afterwards. As soon as I saw Seamus, and this I've never said this about anybody else, and I never will say it about anybody else, I fell in love with him the minute I saw him. And he was extremely different to anybody I'd ever dated in my life. Seamus is quiet. He's introverted. He thinks a lot. And everybody else I'd dated up till that was the exact opposite of that. I um, didn't think a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, true. <laughs> I'm thinking of loads of people who think a lot. There's a people listening now are going to be like, hey. Hey, don't say that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I should never really have met him because I should never have been in a running club. When I did meet him, I was going, but like, he's not like anybody I normally go for or would be interested in. But literally the minute I met him, I left that running club that morning going, that's the person I'm going to marry. We went on our first date. It was just before Christmas. James's sister lives in Canada and he was heading away pretty much the next day or a couple of days later. 
to Canada and I didn't see him for another about five, six weeks. I rang him and I said, look, uh, do you want to meet up for a dinner on Saturday night kind of thing? And we did and we chatted that night and we've never stopped chatting since. Love and life is all about finding and it literally is finding someone that you are excited and happy to live the rest of your life with. And exactly. when you find that, it is an amazing, wonderful, wonderful thing. A lot of people go on to then or or maybe already, you know, always did wish to have children or have a family. So did you both share those same desires? Was it something you'd put much thought into before you met Seamus? Yeah, I put loads of thought into it, but like um, I'd been... Uh, horrifically single for a long time before meeting Seamus and I didn't know of any other gay person who had kids so again as I mentioned earlier I'm quite logical and kind of focused and I kind of thought well look just put that out of your head now because you know it's not possible for a gay man and certainly a single gay man to have kids but then when Seamus and I got together it was particularly kind of obvious from his side like he is from Dublin and he's surrounded here in Dublin by his brothers and sisters and his nephews and nieces and when we started going out in those first couple of months his brother and wife and their three kids lived in there in the house we now live in Seamus's house because they were having a refurb as soon as I met Seamus kids were part of his life his nephews and nieces were you know people he spent time with at weekends in the evenings he'd be out at their matches so he was surrounded by kids and it was very obvious to me that he was as interested in being a parent as I was so it became part of our kind of discussion very, very, very early on in our relationship because I, I did want it. But as I said, I kind of closed my mind off to the possibility. And I find that incredibly sad. That's a very reasonable thought to think, well, I'm a man and, you know, I'm partnering up with a man, whether through marriage or whatever. Having children is not automatically going to be easy, but just thinking and listening to you there, like it just is so heartbreaking that it's so difficult and such a fight. Something was said for the purposes now of the podcast that it was today, with the day we're recording the 28th of April in the Oireachtas meeting. And I thought it was just a fabulous phrase. And I'm sorry that I can't remember who said it, but they said that the want of a child is defined by the human spirit and not by sexuality. And I just thought that was the most real thing I had heard in a while. You know, any man and woman can have a baby and it doesn't have to be a considered thing. So any child that is born, in my mind, to a gay couple is going to be a very, very, very loved child. And a lot of thought will have gone into family life. Um, Not like, you know, every hetero couple. And Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, for me, that is a huge difference between gay parents. And I actually think that should always be remembered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, As I said, in my case, I thought about how it might happen and realised how complicated it was going to be and didn't have the courage to even start the journey because I just thought, what's the point in, in, in trying something that would be so, so, so difficult to overcome? So, yeah, I had, by the time I met Seamus, um, I had just put it out of my mind and kind of said, yeah, no, I'll, I'll live an alternative kind of life or follow an alternative life path and, you know, have lots of nice holidays and have a great career or whatever. I don't know what I was going to do, but the kids thing, I'd kind of very much put it to bed at that stage by the time, by the time Seamus came along. So what changed? Seamus. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just seeing, you know, what a natural person he was. I could just see him as a dad. And then that kind of immediately reignited the spark for me that I had inside me. And as I said, within a couple of months of meeting him, we were very sure we were committed and that we were going to have a future together. And we were starting to have the conversation about not should we have kids? It was could we have kids and how how could we do it? And how did you start that journey of trying to find out what the pathways are in Ireland? Uh, Google. <laughs> Any, uh, like citizens information. <laughs> see, this is the thing, like, like you mentioned, and it's great to know that, that there is now official information out there and sources of information. But back in, I mean, it's only, it sounds like it was 100 years ago, but it was 10 years ago. I knew nobody who had been on this journey and there was no reliable sources of information that you could go to. So we literally Googled something like, 
where can gay men have children or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and then we joined all sorts of Facebook groups. There was no gay Facebook groups for gay parents that we came across anyway. So we were trying to figure out, well, like, okay, that's what it seems to be like for a heterosexual couple. I wonder, can we try that? So we haven't done a kind of a bit of scooting around the internet for a couple of months and kind of come up with a rough idea in our heads. We then made an appointment with a solicitor, a family law solicitor to figure out if what we thought was possible was possible. Okay. And we got lots of uh, bad news there in that, like the solicitor basically said to us, look, there is no legal framework in Ireland to support surrogacy journeys, whether you be a gay male couple or an opposite sex couple or a single woman, surrogacy as far as the law in Ireland does not exist. And the solicitor, albeit that he wasn't a specialist in fertility law, said to us, look, it's such a, a risky undertaking because there's no legal framework to support you. His advice was stay away from it. It's just too, it's too, it's too unknown from a legal perspective. And while it is not legal in Ireland, as it currently stands, it is also not illegal. As you said, it's it's just not recognised. It just doesn't exist as far as the law is concerned. Yeah. Just to go through a little bit of information for listeners that I learned today, and I'd highly recommend people listening into the Oireachtas. The Joint Oireachtas Committee around International Surrogacy. Yes, that. (laughs) I definitely (laughs) think that, you know, it's very insightful. So obviously today... You were explaining about the different countries um, where it is possible. So you've got the USA and Canada and then you've got the UK. So we've talked a lot on this podcast before about what an intended parent is and obviously a biological parent. So an intended parent is the parent who wants to have and parent the child. In the case of surrogacy, please correct me if, if I'm wrong on any of this, Garod, but in surrogacy, where you use a different donor for the egg. There's no biological tie with the surrogate. In the USA and Canada, the intended parents get legal rights as soon as the child is born. Whereas in the UK, the surrogate remains the legal parent after the birth until you return to Ireland and apply for a declaration of parentage. And only the biological father is, so the sperm The sperm, it's not a donor, really, because it's your sperm, but the sperm provider, Provider. (laughs) will we say, is able to request the declaration of parentage in Ireland. Ultimately, the surrogate remains the legal mother. The surrogate is doing something because it means an awful lot to them. They are someone who understands, relates and has huge empathy to a family who wants to have a child and hasn't been able. A surrogate does not want to parent the child. They want to give the gift of carrying the child to the couple, the intended parents. So for the surrogate to remain as the legal parent, that's complicated on so many levels and not right. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I... um You've got it pretty much in a nutshell. I'd say, first of all, though, just very important for listeners to understand the vast majority of surrogacies nowadays involve what's referred to as gestational surrogacy. So that means that the couple need to get an egg donor before they can begin their journey. Most surrogacy journeys no longer involve the surrogate being the egg donor herself. Okay. Um, So if you go to take the gay male perspective if you go to the canadian system or to the united system that exists in the united states you have to practice what's called gestational surrogacy so your journey begins with the one or both members of the gay couple donating sperm or being sperm um, suppliers and then using donated eggs in order to create your embryo which are then transferred uh, to the surrogate there's no legal framework in ireland that talks about what gay male couples must do nowadays around surrogacy. The Irish system assumes that the lady who gives birth to the child is the legal mother. And when that child is born, the Irish system sees her as the only parent that that child has. The Irish system doesn't distinguish whether or not she was the egg donor or whether she was a gestational surrogate. In other words, not 
genetically connected to the child she's given birth to. As far as the Irish system is concerned, it doesn't matter because maternal parentage belongs to the person who gives birth. The Irish system then says, well, look, the male who donated sperm, he can be considered as the legal father, but he has to make an application, as we touched upon, as you touched upon earlier, for what's called a declaration of parentage to get his parental rights recognised. And he has to prove that he is genetically connected to a a sperm analysis and a DNA test uh, to the child. And then when that happens, he becomes the other legal parent. And then his partner, who is the intended father, one of the intended fathers, for the first two years of the child's life, he has absolutely no legal rights to his child. He can't claim guardianship, which means that he can't bring the child for a medical appointment. He can't claim any welfare benefits for the child, as you know, children's allowance. All that has to happen through the legal father. He can't register the child in a creche. He can't pick up the child from a creche without a note. He can't register the child in a school. Uh, He can't bring the child outside the country without a note from the legal father. So the Irish system has no provision to allow both male parents to be considered legal parents. It will only at best allow one of them, the genetic father, to be the legal parent, to be the legal father. Two female partners can both become legal parents. Correct. And they can do that in Ireland? Uh, sperm donation is possible here in Ireland. So um, so there's a complete inequality there because in essence, you're two different types of gay couple. One can get treatment in Ireland and have a mm-hmm. family and the other cannot. Back in 2011, when we kind of first started to having spoken to the solicitor, uh, we tried to talk to the IVF clinics and they said, sorry, while we have no issue with you know, it's not an LGBT uh, discrimination issue. It's just we can't help a same-sex male couple because there's no legislation in place that will protect us in the event of something going wrong. So they said, look, we're really sorry. And here's some good clinics that you might try abroad, basically, was the was the situation that we found ourselves in. Right. And that is all really down to the fact that the birth mother is the legal mother. Correct. So... You guys chose to go abroad, obviously. Where did you look at first? So having done a little bit more research, we decided that the best place for us to try was to go to Canada. And the reason we went to Canada was it's the exact opposite of Ireland. There is specific laws dealing with pregnancies involving surrogacy. Everybody's rights and responsibilities are really, really clearly outlined. That is the rights and responsibilities of the intended parents, as in Seamus and I, uh, the egg donor and the surrogate. And it's very much a model that's built around protecting the egg donor and protecting the surrogate. So it was really important to us that, you know, our children, if they did arrive, would have a really kind of nice birth story that we wouldn't have to kind of hide anything from them or that we wouldn't be in a situation where we didn't have certain pieces of information about their genetic origins and about their gestational origins. And the Canadian system has a really clear pathway to parenthood for the intended parent. So it basically says that the surrogate is fully in charge of the pregnancy up until the point of birth. And that literally gives her full bodily autonomy, the right to make all medical decisions around the pregnancy and her her body, including the right to terminate the pregnancy if she feels that's what needs to happen. But as soon as the child is born, then the intended parents in Canada whether they be based from Canada or from overseas, like myself and Seamus, become the legal parents as soon as the child enters the world, meaning that the intended parents can make all the decisions in the hospital. The child will go home with the intended parents. The intended parents will fully nurse the child in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it doesn't distinguish in Canada between whether you're heterosexual or same-sex couple. So Canada just really appealed to us because it protected everybody from from the perspectives that we were looking at, provided that it is a gestational surrogacy. Uh, In other words, that the surrogate was not the egg donor. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you said there is hugely important and really important for people to hear that it is possible to put a framework in place that will legislate for every stage of the process. And it is possible to protect the surrogate and the surrogate will remain a high priority. And from what I've heard, even listening to 
I was listening to a podcast actually that Kathy Wheatley took part in um, from. Oh, yeah, now yeah. and I just I I actually hadn't come across her before, but I was listening to her on her on the Good Glow podcast, and she spoke so beautifully about her relationship with her surrogate, who was obviously Ukrainian and now here. Um, <laughs> and I just, do you know, I think that's a part that people forget. People value the gift that they are being given so mm. much and it is completely life changing. And I think people understand that it would be impractical, impossible and not wanted to forget the role of the surrogate in the process. Yep. The yep. surrogate, as we said earlier, doesn't want to be the mother. I know Kathy obviously has a very good relationship with her surrogate and, you know, remains actively involved in her life. I assume that's different for every couple and every surrogate because a lot of surrogates will have had their own families already and be busy and, you know, they, they want mm -hmm. to do it, but they don't want involvement. And I suppose that's where finding a family that match with a surrogate very well would be really important to want the same yeah. things. So the way it works, another aspect of the Canadian system that I didn't touch upon is that as an international parent, intended parent coming to Canada, you have to register with a, an agency that's a government appointed, a government, well, certainly a government regulated agency who are responsible for getting all of your records together, finding out what you're looking for in terms of, you know, relationship, for example, between you and the surrogate and also your whole medical files, et cetera, et cetera, your identity, uh, checking your passports, all that sort of stuff. And then once they learn a little bit about you and the personality that you have and the couple that you are, et cetera, they then try to find you a surrogate who might match well with you. And one of the key things that couples are encouraged to do in the Canadian system is figure out exactly that piece. How do they want their relationship to look after the baby is born? You know, do they want somebody who's going to be like a, a foster auntie almost, um, you know, somebody who's going to be really involved in the child's life and maybe even come over to Ireland or wherever, to, you know, to attend important occasions? Or are they looking for somebody who's more happy to let them get on with the parenting and kind of not Step be as, as involved? And, and the surrogates, have the exact same perspective. Some surrogates, you know, really, really want a close bond with the intended parents. Some surrogates are happy to engage in the journey and then let the relationship be a little bit more casual. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really important issue because obviously if there's a mismatch of expectations, it's going to cause hurt on both sides or certainly one of the sides. And you see, this is why I think regulation and frameworks in Ireland are so important going forward because everyone having good communication and like you said, their expectations is so important. So what happened then in Canada? I know you haven't asked me yet, but you know, when you're, it's, it's really important to kind of get this out there. It is expensive for a Canadian surrogacy journey. You're looking at in the region of a hundred thousand euros all in. What? Before you go on, an important thing that I wanted to talk about, and I really want to highlight here that I could be being extremely ignorant but yep. altruistic versus commercial surrogacy. So there's a third one there called compensated, which is the Canadian system. OK, so I'm going <laughs> to hazard a guess. Obviously, altruistic is where you are just doing it to to provide someone with a baby because that feels amazing, I imagine. Exactly, yeah. And then compensated is where a private arrangement is agreed and money is paid for expenses if I were being a surrogate, on a practical level, I'm going to have to take time off work to go to medical appointments. For me personally, because I had previous C-sections, it'd be a C-section delivery. So I'm going to be like six weeks out of work afterwards. Mm -hmm. There's going to be medical cost implications with the journey. I think, to be honest, that's probably it really. I'm sure you could add to it a lot. But what I'm saying is, even by being happy to give the gift of surrogacy to someone, you might not be able to afford it without your expenses being covered. Exactly. So I assume that's one type. You said there's three. I'm Your altruistic is probably, you know, to use a kind of a, a very simple and common everyday example um, would be a scenario maybe where a best friend says to another best friend, look, I know you and your husband or you and your wife or whatever uh, are struggling to have a kid. 
I would be happy to be the the person who carries that pregnancy for you. And, um, you know, you might agree, okay, look, we will cover you for your appointments and your taxis or whatever, whatever it is that would be considered altruistic. There is like, and again, you know, in the, in the door committee that's taking place at the moment, there's a big kind of conversation going on about what is compensated surrogacy versus what is commercial surrogacy. My understanding is that compensated surrogacy is what exists in Canada, whereby the surrogate is allowed to reclaim any of the costs that you touched upon there associated with the pregnancy. And that would that would be defined in an agreement between her and the intended parents that would be supervised, supervised by a lawyer. So any of the expenses that would be claimed by the surrogate would have to be vouched expenses. I think the conversation that's going on at the moment is about potential exploitation of surrogates and having a system in place where you have an agency or someone and they can offer support and advice to the surrogate and also to the intended parents. So that would get rid of any possible exploitation. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned it there. I mean, the, the, the expenses exist during the pregnancy, but they can also continue beyond the pregnancy. For example, if the surrogate had a difficult labor and wasn't in a position to go back to work for a period of time, then there has to be a conversation had as to, well, who's going to make sure that the surrogate's income isn't negatively affected. Exactly. So that's what the Canadian model is. It's a compensated model. Then just kind of finish off the explanation. There is a concept called commercial surrogacy, which is where the surrogate will be allowed to claim the expenses. And then an agreement can be reached between her and the parents as to how much of of additional payment will be made from the intended parents to the surrogate for the stress that she might endure with the pregnancy or the time and the effort associated with being pregnant. I think in the commercial sense, there's probably a, a payment at some point that doesn't necessarily have a receipt associated with it. The American system is very much, again, based on everybody having independent legal, medical and psychological advice before anything happens, you know, before they even try to create embryos, uh, before the embryo is transferred, etc. But the American system does allow for, as I said, the Canadian system just allows for the surrogate to reclaim vouched expenses. The American system allows for the surrogate to get that plus an additional payment. But that is generally agreed between the parties in advance, how much that's going to be and when it's going to be paid. And both systems, both the American and the Canadian system, I mean, the way they kind of ensure that everybody follows is obviously they, they create legal frameworks for the intended parents and the surrogate, but there's checks and balances to make sure that everything went according to what was agreed in the contract and agreed between the parties before anything started. So the American and the Canadian systems are very much about trying to understand the journey from start to finish and making sure that everybody does try to behave in a, in a good way as the as the pregnancy progresses. And I, I know we keep getting distracted from this because I think this is about the third time I've said, and then you were in Canada. <laughs> and then we were in Canada. So I promise I won't interrupt again. <laughs> not at all. Like, I mean, it's, as, as we've been discussing uh, in the Eroctus committees over the last couple of weeks, this is a really complicated area. And that's maybe one of the reasons why there is an Eroctus committee to try and tease out all these issues. So, yeah, we're, we're in Canada. We've got the money together and we're delighted with ourselves. And we're really naive thinking, well, look, we're most couples who come to surrogacy end up there because they're a heterosexual couple who've had years of infertility and awful heartache. And I've met loads of them and their stories are just horrific. And we're there thinking, well, look, we're two relatively young, fit, healthy males with probably good sperm counts and well-behaved sperm and all that sort of stuff. And then we're going to be getting an egg donation, um, probably from somebody who doesn't have a medical issue or a medical history. And uh, we'll hopefully have a surrogate who can help us to carry a pregnancy. So we kind of thought the hard bit was almost over in trying to get the money together and get the courage together to start a Canadian journey. So off we went to our clinic in Toronto. And we created four viable embryos and we had been matched with a surrogate and she was a a terrific, terrific, terrific human being. And she knew somebody who had been a surrogate and she realized what a bloody empowering and brilliant thing to do. That's why she expressed interest in being a surrogate for somebody else, because she realized that what her kids had done for her was so priceless. Why not help somebody who couldn't have kids? And she wasn't in a position to have more children. And we had joined an agency and by coincidence, she had joined the agency around the same time. And having done our profile and her profile, they realized we might be a good match. And we were. 
then it all went pear-shaped in that we transferred the four embryos. So we did the first transfer and James and I were so excited and we were all there in the room, did the embryo transfer. And as I said, we were at the point where we were thinking, this is going to work. This is our, this is our time. Did the embryo transfer, waited a couple of days, uh, did a, a, an at-home pregnancy test. There was nothing. And then we kind of waited and hoped that, you know, it was wrong. There was nothing. Yeah, um, give it a few more days. <laughs> give it a few more days. Yeah, go on, go on. But then uh, in the way, certainly in IVF pregnancies mm-hmm. work, they, they do a blood test after a certain number of days. I can't remember exactly how many. And yeah, there was no pregnancy. So, okay, we just had to regroup. And I mean, um, she herself, the surrogate, was was as disappointed about it as we were. She was optimistic about being pregnant. So we tried again and again, did another transfer, didn't work. And you guessed it, we did a third transfer, didn't work. And at this stage, like our optimism is starting to decline and our stress levels are starting to go up because, as I said, we had four embryos. So we transferred the fourth embryo and we all prayed and prayed and prayed. And Seamus and I were at home one day and it was a Sunday afternoon and she just sent us an image on WhatsApp that I'll never forget. And it was just an empty, it was just, there was no line there. And she was being as optimistic as she always was. She goes, I think there's a faint line there. And I was like zooming in and trying to enlarge the picture. I was like, there's there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Any parent listening, regardless. Knows about that. And I'm not going to compare the standard two week wait that, you know, a hetero couple endure, which is hard enough from personal experience and stressful. I cannot imagine I cannot imagine the stress when, you know, you've had to do so much to orchestrate mm-hmm. that attempt of pregnancy. I'm so sorry because I know how heartbreaking that must have been. Yeah, like, I mean, the way I described it was like, it was kind of one one transfer after the next, after the next. But obviously it didn't work out like that. I mean, there was significant gaps sometimes between the transfers because her body needed to recover she needed to maybe, you know, deal with stuff at home with her kids and then get back yeah. in a position where she could try again to do an embryo transfer. And we were all the time very conscious of her welfare and making sure that, you know, we weren't there. Come on, come on, you know, stressing her, yeah. do it again. So we always left it up to her. So the reality was the transfer of those four embryos took a combined period of about almost two years. James and I would say to each other in that period, oh, look, you know, let's just wait for the next transfer now and let's put that to bed in our minds and we won't talk about that and we won't think about it. And sure, five minutes later, we were talking about it and thinking about it. So it was a it was a two year period of our lives when, yeah, we got on with life uh, as best we could. But like we would also be saying to ourselves, well, like, oh, yeah, well, like, you know, we can't really book that holiday for next summer. Sure. Hopefully the baby will be here. Yeah, you're not you're you not know, really. Every, everybody has been there. Yeah. In that trying to conceive journey. You're not really living. Okay, so what did you do next after that? So when the fourth and final attempt had failed, we were like, I I always, I've said this before, the sound of silence in the house for weeks was just horrific. Because like, we were just devastated, just literally devastated. And I couldn't even begin to figure out why, which of the emotions was causing us the most devastation. Because obviously the hopes and dreams of becoming daddies was gone. We had put our heart and souls into it emotionally. So we were devastated for that reasons. And then we were broke. Like, I mean, the money that we thought we had to get us through the journey and to get us to being parents was gone. And more besides, because it had gone on for so long and there had been so many other additional unforeseen kind of expenses. And yeah, we were, we were lost because we didn't know where to go. Now, Seamus will always say when he looks back on it, he said he never gave up. But I, when that fourth transfer failed and that fourth embryo had, had been gone, I was convinced that, um, that that was it. Thankfully, there was never a, a significant period of time when both of us wanted to give up because there was definitely times during it when each of us wanted to give up and the other one was willing to stay going. Yeah. We begged, we borrowed and we sold so we took a break from it for about a year and a bit. And during that time, we both worked as hard as we could. We both had, as my mother would say, good jobs. And um, we saved as much money as we can could. We sacrificed things. And I was in the place where when I met James, I had my own house here in Dublin and I had kept that as an investment. And thankfully, 
the property market by that stage was starting to recover and there was a bit of equity in it. And we said, right, we're selling the house. So we, I don't know, like uh, I, I went into the first journey in Canada thinking, as I said earlier, this is definitely going to work. Whereas I went into the next leap uh, and next journey thinking, nah, it'll never work. It's just not meant to be for us. But look, sell the house. Do, you know, I have a kind of a thing like regret the things you did do rather than the things you didn't do. Absolutely. And I said, look, and we both agreed, let's give it one more shot. Let's try one more time. We kept hearing about this really, really good clinic in the United States. So remember, again, we're still at the point where no legislation has been passed in Ireland. IVF for gay male couples that require the support of a surrogate is still not possible in Ireland. So we went to this clinic in California. They did more tests and analysis on both of us, and they figured out maybe that there was an issue with both of our sperms. And they decided that the suggestion was like each of us would donate sperm for this journey and what did you do the first time around? So the first time around, we just used one sperm from one person. <laughs> to have... To get your declaration of parentage, yeah, you have to know uh, who is the biological father. So in a way, it's, it would have been more straightforward to have one sperm donor or not provider yeah, in that case. Provider, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So they suggested, look, both of you donate. We will take an egg donation again. And they figured out that maybe I was the one who had more issues with my sperm than Seamus. So what they suggested was that they would fertilize, I think, two thirds of the eggs that were available to us with Seamus' sperm and one third with mine, or was it three quarters and one quarter? Yeah. It was something around that. And then we didn't know this, but in the US, when they have created your embryos for you, they send you back uh, a report saying how many embryos you have. They tell you who is the biological link to the sperm or to the embryos. And they also tell you the gender of your embryos. Oh, so if you didn't um, want to know, I'm just saying. <laughs> but we didn't really, like we didn't, uh, we didn't really want to know. And, uh, but anyway, we found out like we didn't, whatever couple of weeks of uh, signing is... up at the clinic and going through the process, we knew we had six embryos and we knew exactly who was biologically connected to them and well, how many boys and how many girls we might, we could have, which is not possible in other locations. So yeah, just, that's another thing to know about the US. Wow. <laughs> That's it's just, yeah, like finding out the gender before the pregnancy begins. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This little five day old embryo has a gender at that stage. Where did you go from there? <laughs> so where do we go from there? So this is where kind of everything changed for us. Um, I had worked in London for about a year and a half and I had become very good friends with a girl from Birmingham. And we kept in touch over the years, albeit that like she had come back. She'd gone back to Birmingham and got on with her life and I'd come back to Ireland and got on with my life. But we always kept in touch and she had known what Seamus and I were up to in Canada and how disappointing it all was for us. And uh, she herself had had kids with her partner and he, she was in her early 30s and was very happy with having two kids. And she said to me one day on a text message, I'll do it for you. <laughs> I, I can't like you're going, yeah, yeah, you're not serious. But yeah. she was. She was. Yeah. Um, so she had heard about surrogacy again, had come across somebody in the UK where surrogacy again is more common than here because it's regulated. And uh, she's a bit daft in a good way. And she kind of <laughs> thought, Jesus, that would be a great experience. I must try that sometime, kind of was her mentality. <laughs> As I said, we didn't call each other that often. But as soon as she sent me that message, I rang back. We talked about it. And then I thought about it. And then I said it to Seamus. And the more we talked to her, like he knew her, but he didn't know her as well as I did. So anyway, we went over and back to, to Birmingham a few times to meet her and talk about it. And I met her sister. I met her mom. Seamus was with me, obviously. And she was really, 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 the more she talked about it, she was the one getting more excited about yeah. it. And it was almost at the end, we kind of went, God, we better, we better go ahead with this. Now, <laughs> Can't let her down totally, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Irish, like, you know, oh, we don't want to be rude. <laughs> So anyway, um, and you now have 28 children. <laughs> she just keeps asking. She keeps going. I'm sorry. Stop, please stop having children. Uh, so, yeah, well, it kind of was like that because the, we were in touch with the clinic about the idea and they said, like, yeah, you know, send over her medical records to us. We'll have a look at it. And they were very, very, very thorough. And they said, look, before we as a clinic would agree that this is a good idea, we need to meet her and we need her to come over here and go through our kind of tests. We could get them done remotely, but we prefer to meet 
and greet and make sure they were also taking the American perspective that the surrogate, even though she wasn't in the American system, would need to be psychologically evaluated, medically evaluated, legally represented. Like they wanted to do it as they would um, if it was a, a U.S. surrogate. So she went over to the clinic. She loved it. She went over with her sister. And they came back a couple of days later and the clinic said, yeah, she is a really, really brilliant candidate. Like there's a really strong probability, you know, that she would be able to help you guys. And she was more excited than ever about it. Then she came up with the notion that instead of having a baby for us, because she said, you know, I know you want to have a couple of kids. Why don't I carry twins for you? And I was really like, seriously, what planet do you exist on? (laughs) So like she's taking it to a new level, just saying. Yeah, yeah. No, wow. seriously. Uh, it was her. Like, wow. <laughs> Seamus and I both immediately said no to that idea because we felt we'd been in this process for a long time. We had never had any look. But she's a very persuasive girl. And uh, eventually, now, but I say eventually, a couple of weeks of thinking about it and talking about it, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of the clinic and asking them for their input on the idea. They said we, they couldn't see any reason why a twin pregnancy would carry undue risk above and beyond what's associated with a twin pregnancy. We went for it and we transferred two embryos in San Diego back in January of 2018. Sperm wise, what did you end up deciding? The clinic made the decision for us because not only in the US do they tell you, you know, the gender of your embryos, but they also rank them in kind of this is the best available embryo to you have. This is the second best available, best available being like likelihood of conceiving yes. a healthy child. And it came back when they did the analysis of the six available embryos that one of them was belonged to Seamus. And the next one, which was probably equally uh, a good option, was genetically related to me. Um, so um, and one of them was a little boy uh, who's now called Sean. And one of them was a little girl who's now called Mary. Oh, my God, I just love this story. And I actually, I'm I'm getting the shivers thinking about the biological ties to both of you as well. Like it just couldn't have been more perfect. And that person was in your life for a reason. And I know there you're describing your relationship and you're like, yeah, we were friends, but we were just friends, you know. Yeah. But it just shows you, I think, I always say, right, as a profession, nursing is a calling and teaching. Mm-hmm. And funnily, I, it's a weird thing to equate, but I think surrogacy is a calling. It's one of those things that's either, you know, you want to do or you don't. And I think you found someone who obviously was very happy to experience the pregnancy and to enable you to have your family. And I am so glad that Sean and Mary are here. How old are they? They are heading, they'll be four in September. So just, uh, just gone three and a half. And actually, yeah, I'm just thinking about the timing of that as well, because obviously then you had to endure the pandemic with twins. I'm going, are you all right? (laughs) (laughs) It was actually fine because, well, you know, as it was one of the better uh, stories to come out of the pandemic, because like we were at the stage when the pandemic hit that they were just about a year and a half and their little world at that stage is very, very small. Yeah. They're very content to stay within their 2K, provided there's a couple of playgrounds and within the 5K. So it was OK. And then the fact that they had each other in terms of like socialization, you know, it's almost enough to have one other little person in your life at that stage when you're that young. So yeah. it, I know a lot of people who had older kids who suffered a lot more than than we did during the pandemic. I suppose just more on your unique position as two gay dads. How have you found the reaction of people um, that you meet out and about as a gay dad, say meeting someone in the playground? Have you found Ireland a nice place to rear children as two gay dads? Yeah. Uh, well, just to mention, we have three kids, of course, because. Uh... <laughs> OK, yeah, wait before. Yeah. OK, go back. Go back. What? <laughs> Is this the same surrogate? Same surrogate. You're joking. Oh my goodness. She went back for more after the twins. She gave birth to the twins and it was her first time ever, you know, to be a surrogate. And when the twins were born, she was very hesitant around how she was going to feel because she'd never experienced this before. So 
we the twins were born in England um, in a hospital in Birmingham, and they were so supportive of us, like way above, like it was an NHS hospital. It wasn't a private hospital or anything like that, but like basically they arranged it in such a way that as soon as the twins were born, Seamus and I would become their carers within the hospital. She was given a private room in the hospital, in a public hospital to recover. And she could stay as near to the twins as she wanted to or as far away from them as she wanted to. And for the first couple of days, she chose not to see the twins, not to hold them, not to touch them. Albeit that Seamus and I were running up and down the stairs to her all the time and showing her pictures, which was what she wanted. But she just wanted to have that physical separation from them. Things like your milk coming in and... Mm -hmm. You know, when it's not your child and yeah. you have milk coming in like that, that that would be emotional. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that you wouldn't have thought about that. And, yeah. you know, you, you'd be in the headspace. But I suppose, look, all of those things have to have had been challenging for her yeah. initially. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we always, always talked to her about what she needed and wanted and what what could we do because evidently whatever she needed and wanted we would do it for her um so yeah she left the hospital um a couple of days after the twins were born our little people needed to stay there for two or three days thankfully they were born 37 and a half weeks when they were born amazing and they were born without any issues um but anyway she met them then once she was discharged from hospital and once the kids were discharged from hospital we all met up and she was very comfortable very quickly with seeing them, touching them, holding them uh, and being around them. And she'd come to terms with, you know, exactly who she was in terms yeah. of their lives and that she had carried them, but that, you know, she didn't want any maternal relationship with them. She'd always say that, you know, her relationship was with us, not necessarily with the kids. Um, yeah, like it's important to highlight it yeah, yeah. biologically. You know, she didn't have to worry about giving up a biological tie because there wasn't exactly. one there. Yeah. There wasn't one there. In fact, like, I mean, she's a completely different race and colour to the kids. <laughs> so <laughs> that was another. So there were twins born with two daddies and they were <laughs> born from a female who is completely different yeah, colour to them. What is Ireland like as a gay dad? So Ireland is actually a brilliant place to be a gay parent in. If you ignore the fact that there's all this legal minefield that you have to navigate on a societal level, it's a brilliant place to be. That is um, good to hear. I, I grew up in the in the Midlands on the border between Tipperary and Offaly and I'll never forget the kids were back here in Dublin in a couple of days and obviously their aunties and uncles, uh, particularly their aunties down in the country, wanted to meet them and see them. And we headed down there and I was thinking, oh, I wonder what it's like now, because, you know, for me growing up there, I always assumed that. I didn't have a future as a gay man, certainly in the Midlands and probably not even in Ireland. So now going back down with my husband and (laughs) first of all, the two kids was was a bit of a leap of fate. But like we got to my sister's house, sat down, kids settled and suddenly the doorbell is ringing and it's an elderly neighbour with like a cake that she's baked and wants to get a squeeze, as they say, of the twins. And then the next doorbell rings and it's another neighbour and then it's another neighbour and it's another neighbour. And literally nobody, nobody batted an eyelid at the fact that there was two daddies in the house minding the kids. And all they wanted was to know that these kids had arrived to celebrate their arrival and to be delighted with the fact that these kids were so cherished and so loved. And that's the way it should be. It's really nice to hear that you feel supported and that your kids got a great welcome, great country welcome. Yeah. But like uh, exactly real country like it was it was just gas but like it's the same like we live here in Dublin now we live in North County Dublin about 25k outside the city it's a small village filled with like typical Celtic Tiger semi-D houses you know and there's loads of kids around and twins are at the age now where they're able to venture outside a little bit I go out with them though onto the green and like there's kids there on the green playing from like you know the age of 12 down to five kind of and then our two are trying to keep up with them even though they're only three and a half but like none of the kids bat an eyelid some of them have said all right which so is one of you a foster parent like they're trying to get their head around trying trying to figure it out and then you give them like a quick summary and they go okay did you see my football and like we do we we are aware that like maybe if a heterosexual couple had gone through surrogacy and then they go to their local shopping center you know they'll blend in nobody will know but 
clearly when Seamus and I go to the local shopping centre down in Swords and we're wheeling around a triple buggy like with three kids aged three and a half and under, people realise straight away what they're looking at. And we've never once been stared at. We've never once felt that we were the subject of nudges and winks. Ireland is fantastic as a as a gay parent. Literally have never had one incident where we felt um, people don't don't approve of what we're doing here. I'm delighted to hear that. And I imagine, you know, there are a lot of parents out there or potential parents who may be nervous about perception. And that is such a positive story. And because I was one of those parents. Big relief for everyone. Like imagine if you brought your child into the world and then they were bullied for the rest of their life because of you and your husband. I mean, I think the marriage referendum taught Irish society a lot of things. The marriage referendum forced pretty much every family in Ireland, whether or not they had a gay member of their family or a gay relative or, a, you know, a gay neighbour, every family had to sit down at some point around their kitchen table and have a chat about what they taught about gay relationships and what they taught about the potential for people of the same sex to get married to each other. And it, I think it, maybe I'm overstating it, but I think it that was definitely a watershed moment, whether or not it was enough and there's still things that we need to talk about. That's probably true. But I definitely think it brought a lot of subjects that have been hidden away and been the subject of nudges and winks previously into the open space. Absolutely. And I think because of that, a lot of people, a lot of parents started to have conversations going, well, or thoughts to themselves. What if my kids are gay? Exactly. What do I want the world to be like for them? For them. Exactly. You know, and I think that's become good thing to have thought about and it allows mm. it, it created I suppose a bit more empathy in everyone because everyone's yeah. like yeah okay no that this actually affects everyone and people I love mm. around me and potentially my family so let's try okay. and fix fix the world a little bit one step at a time and as you said there's a lot more that needs to be done so you did another little girl yeah uh, when the surrogate who helped us with the twins had given birth to them she swore never again uh, <laughs> and then we were chatting and one night and I, I genuinely don't really remember how the conversation happened because we were probably so tired <laughs> from from rearing Sean and Mary, albeit that we were really lucky with them. Like there were there were both little children who liked their beds and liked their food and kind of settled down. I know. I know. I hate to, that yeah, like, so, yeah, I don't exactly. like parents who had sleep. <laughs> yeah, we were those parents when the twins were born. Seamus and I left the maternity hospital. I remember walking out to the car with them in their little carry cots and I thinking, enjoy this moment because this will never happen again. You'll never be going home from the hospital with your newborn baby. And we were both convinced for a couple of weeks that we would never, you know, we had our family and we had our two kids and we were delighted. And then a couple of months later, I was driving with Seamus somewhere and I just said to him, I want to have another baby. <laughs> and he was kind of, he was open to the idea for sure, but probably we had always previously discussed that, no, we have our kids, we have a boy and a girl. Each of us got to be a biological parent, which was important to us beforehand. But now that they're here, it's totally irrelevant. Anyway, so, yeah, he was kind of, bit, I'd say a bit surprised. I've never really had time to ask him. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, so we decided, yeah, we'd love to do it again. And I think it was Oz in fairness who asked, who asked the surrogate, would she, would she consider doing it again? And she was really open to the idea straight away. She said, yeah, um, wow, no problem. But then, of course, the global pandemic did hit and that did impact us big time because our embryos were in the United States. Yeah. And the United States had closed its borders to Europeans. Our surrogate was due to travel to the clinic to undergo the transfer in mid-April 2020. Oh, and then the United States, literally about three weeks before the transfer was due to take place, Donald Trump, and it was Saturday afternoon, I'll never forget it, came on whatever CNN and opened that conversation saying that he was banning Europeans from entering the United States. And we were like, when you think of, of all the things we had done, what literally what other barrier could you have put in front of you? You had found a surrogate, like yeah. so many challenges and such a big journey. What happened then? So we waited and waited. We just saw obviously that things were getting worse rather than getting better around the world. And in California, it was getting way worse. The numbers were going through the roof. So we thought about it, right? If Muhammad will not come to the mountain or whatever, let's bring the mountain to Muhammad. So we arranged, and I didn't know there was such a company, but there is a company that actually transfer IVF components from clinic to clinic around the world. Okay. So we found a company 
and it's run actually by an Irish couple based in France. And of course it is. <laughs> A girl from Math and Rye. <laughs> and uh, we contacted them and they agreed that they would move the, the, the embryos out of the clinic in California. But of course, you can't just move embryos around the world. It's not it's not as easy as that. So we had to find somewhere to, that would accept them. We couldn't bring them to Ireland because of the lack of legislation. We couldn't bring them to the UK because we knew the gender of the embryos and that's prohibited under UK law because okay. you, they don't want people engaging in sex selection. Yeah. Uh, and I said, to them, like, we're not going to engage in sex selection. We were going to use this embryo because it's the best the most embryo. viable embryo. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, where did we end up sending the embryos, but to a clinic in Northern Cyprus? Of course you did. It's the logical <laughs> choice. What? As you do. <laughs> and what, Okay. Right. So. Right. So again, like you're de- you're dealing with the fact that lots of locations in the world will not accept uh, surrogacy as a concept. Northern Cyprus does. They don't necessarily say that they're helping a gay or straight couple in Northern Cyprus. They just say that we're transferring an embryo into a female uh, womb. Uh, so that's the way they looked at it on, under their legal system. Yeah. So the surrogate then traveled from her hometown in Birmingham to Northern Cyprus in the middle of a pandemic, which was really difficult because they had very, very strict law. They didn't have COVID necessarily within Northern Cyprus and they did everything to keep it out of the borders. So anyway, she went to Northern Cyprus, had to do all the PCR tests before leaving, PCR tests on arrival. And then the clinic had, you know, got some special exemption from the government that they could pick her up from the hotel, bring her to the clinic, do the transfer, then send her back to the hotel uh, and then bring her back the next day to make sure she was okay medically. Mm-hmm. And anyway, she flew home and I woke up in the middle of the night. I checked my phone and she said, I'm really sorry for doing this because I know I promised I wouldn't do a home pregnancy test, but I did and I'm pregnant. <laughs> I was like, I forgive you. Go on then. <laughs> I just love this girl, right? Because she texted to go, hey, I'll be your surrogate. And now she's like, yeah. hey, you're having a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Seamus was asleep beside me in the bed and I thought, oh, I just need a minute to digest all this. And I anyway, I let him sleep. I don't know why I did. I kept it to myself for about three or four hours. And then um, he woke up the next morning and we were chatting in bed and I said, oh, check your messages there because it was in the group WhatsApp, you know, and he opened up his phone and there he saw it as well. So Anne was on the way. Oh, my goodness. And your surrogate is a complete legend by the way, like as if there wasn't a much enough red tape, then, you know, adding a gazillion PCR tests into yeah, yeah, it. And exactly, exactly, exactly. She had to do most of the, the scans and all that in the in the local hospital in Birmingham again um, on her own. Um, I mean, her partner went along with her, but like, yeah, it was a really tough time for her. She was and she'll always say that she was carrying this or the two pregnancies having already done her own two pregnancies, but that she felt way more pressure for these pregnancies because, you know, it was somebody else's child. And yeah, um, yeah, not that we were putting pressure on her, but she just had this internal pressure. So, yeah, um, Anne arrived in June of last year. Amazing. So Anne was born in the UK um, UK. and this will apply for the three kids. I can't believe we've ended up three children. In terms of Irish law, the surrogate would have been the birth mum as recognised by the Irish legislative system. If your surrogate had been married, Mm -hmm. am I correct in saying that her husband would have been the second legal parent? Correct, yeah. (laughs) Like, not being funny, but he's had nothing to do with it, right? (laughs) That's that's an innate wrongness. Yeah, yeah, he's getting all that credit for doing that. I'm like, what did you do? Do you know what I mean? Like, right. So the three children at different stages obviously came home and biological tie is to so we have three kids Seamus is the biological father of Sean okay. one of the twins I'm the biological father of Mary the other one of the twins okay and then Anne is biologically related to Seamus okay so your their birth certs then at that point after you had applied for a declaration of parentage um respectively for your own biologically tied children, you were listed as parents for those children. 
And then presumably that's the case now for Anne. She obviously hasn't been in the house for two years, so you can't apply for guardianship. Exactly. So at the moment, you've no legal tie. No legal connection to her whatsoever. You and I have the same legal connection to her. Yes. As far as Anne is concerned. Which is. Go figure. And I discussed this with the two mammies. The shortcomings in guardianship versus uh, even when you get guardianship after two years versus parentage. Crap prize, yeah. Like, no, it's no good, right? We're not having it. So, but that's the way it stands. So you're presumably now guardian to Sean. Mm-hmm. So you can do all the medical things, but at the moment you need Seamus to consent for any medical um, requirements for Anne. And obviously the implications then to speak horribly, but in terms of the case of death or one or other yeah. of you, the tax implications, even inheritance tax, everything. Um, everything. And to have your family in jeopardy Limbo, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is horrendous. So... I think the whole point of all of this conversation is that the Assisted Human Reproduction Bill is coming in and the coalition, really what you are looking for, in essence, is for surrogacy to be addressed, not ignored, because exactly. there's no point in sticking our heads in the sand because it's clearly already happening. Anyone? It's happened who, at least three times. At least three times. <laughs> they can go to your house for proof. <laughs> so... What are we doing, really achieving by not recognising something, regardless of what your views are, right? Exactly. Surely it's in the best interest, even if you don't agree with assisted human reproduction in any way, shape or form, or mm-hmm. even if you don't agree with surrogacy. Is it in the interest of the intended parents, the biological parents, the surrogate, anyone like for it not to have safeguards in place and frameworks that everyone can work to. If we have some bit of control over it in Ireland and legal framework, we can protect people and people will be able to explore their options in Ireland rather than having maybe to go abroad. And I appreciate that people for various reasons may still end up going abroad, Mm -hmm. but so that their children can be legally connected to their actual two parents exactly and it's not enough to bring in this bill which obviously is still going to take a long time to come in and looking at the the last piece of legislation they brought in there was five years between it being yeah exactly and also it needs to be retrospective because you cannot leave a cohort of parents like yourselves Mm -hmm. out and i suppose that's that's the main message really isn't it exactly like and the other aspect one other aspect is like the legislation as it mo- as it stands at the moment or the lack of legislation puts a surrogate in a really vulnerable position as well because she is in the eyes of the state not only is she the legal mother but with the way the irish constitution works she's actually the primary parent even with you know okay the declaration of parentage somehow somewhat dissolves that but like the state is still expecting her to play a role in the children's lives and like for her, let's say something happened in her family and she was to be deceased, our kids could potentially, if they wanted to, go over to the UK and say, actually, no, we have a claim in her estate as well. God, you know? I didn't think about that. That's horrendous. Yes. So like it, it's, it's you know, the, the those who are against it probably take the perspective, well, you know, it, um, it exploits, surrogacy exploits surrogates and leaves them in a vulnerable position. Well, not legislating for it actually leaves them in a way more vulnerable position and also opens up the possibility for exploitation. Whereas if everything is above board and covered off with legal documentation and medical support, et cetera, et cetera, then you're minimizing the opportunity for exploitation of any party. And these children already exist. Okay. They're here. They're upstairs asleep. Thank God. <laughs> exactly. And there are, I'm sure, many other children in the same boat with many different parents of all genders. Um, mm-hmm. And people are going to continue to do it because, as we said earlier, the human spirit is pretty strong. Yeah. And when you want to have a baby, you would move the ends of the world to have, yeah. you know, to have one. So... We spoke about everyone's rights there, and I suppose I'm just going to finish on this. The most important thing, in my view, but it all comes down to, obviously, human rights and rights for children. So exactly. by not protecting any of the stakeholders involved here, which seems a crude word to call parents, mm-hmm. surrogates and everything, mm-hmm. we're not protecting our children, our most vulnerable, who really and truly are 
loved and being nourished in a secure, warm, loving environment, which is the best thing for them. But by Mm -hmm. ignoring them legally, we're putting them in a very vulnerable position. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The reality is like even when the Declaration of Parentage is, is created, if that legal parent was then to die, it leaves the child in the Irish state, in our case, with no legal parent. Um, as in the other legal parent is in the UK. Uh, and then all they have here in Ireland is a guardian looking after them. And um, I, I find it offensive for you, say, to refer to yourself as all they have here is a guardian. Like that's so upsetting yeah. when it's your child you've yeah. fed, minded your stay at home dad. So yeah. it's so wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Like for you, for the child, for the surrogate who, mm-hmm. you know, was never the intended parent. Yeah, I'd love to be the legal parent of my three children, not just one of them. But what I really want to know is that no matter what happens to their parents, that those children will be as protected as the family who live next door to us. Because right now they're not. They're treated differently. They're viewed differently. They don't have the same rights. If people are, are, are on board with the idea, please let a local politician know. Because one of the reasons why this might take so long and is taking so long is because the politicians, to be fair, are very busy people and they're dealing with lots of issues and they don't maybe think that this is as important because it doesn't affect a huge number of people. You know, now this just just doesn't affect gay men. It affects heterosexual couples who have children through surrogacy who are probably a bigger group. So, yeah, contact a local politician and tell them you've heard about this and you don't think it's good enough nowadays for, for kids to be treated this way where they're not allowed to have a relationship, a legal relationship with the people who love them and care for them on a daily basis. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm very, very grateful for your time. You know, there is that old expression, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, in our case, it was a pretty big village spread all over the world. And like the, to get them here onto this planet was uh, such a battle. And if I can help somebody else by just telling the story, I'm delighted. <laughs>